preach. And I'll tell you, the Holy Ghost began to fall. Hallelujah. And there were people who came running to give their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Naked Pentecostalism. I'm your host, Isaac Coverstone. Welcome to this podcast about the denomination of Pentecostals. And we're going to go over some history of the denomination, just cover some different aspects of this particular belief system, this branch of Christianity. And we'll talk about where I came from as far as uh, my background. And hopefully we'll all learn something about this particular somewhat unique uh, area of Christianity. I hope that everyone listening can gain from this in some way or another. My goal is education. I want people to be aware of what they're getting into. And if you're already neck deep in this particular theology, hopefully you'll learn something as well. Uh, I find it's quite often that people that have even grown up and were involved in this particular branch for many, many years, or even their entire life, very often don't know a lot of things about it. And it's accepted as a way of life without really going into much detail. So without further ado, let's just jump into the history of what is Pentecostalism, where did it come from originally, go over some history of the ideology itself, and then we can uh, go on from there with other episodes of the podcast perhaps. So Pentecostalism really came on the radar. It, It showed up early 20th century in the United States. The first recorded instances uh, that strikes, um, that makes us aware of Pentecostals and, and differentiates them, stems right around the year 1900. There was a man named Charles Parham, who was an American evangelist. He was a uh, faith healer of sorts, who started to... Uh, he, he started a small Bible class uh, in Bethel Bible College, and they started to look at the gifts of the Spirit that were evidenced in the early church, so the apostolic age of the church, so to speak. And they started thinking about finding the spiritual gifts that were in effect during the apostolic age, such as divine healing, speaking in tongues, and prophecy and such like. And they were trying to bring them back into modern life, so to speak. It was a restorationist movement. They very much wanted to take the New Testament church and bring it into the 20th century with no adaptation whatsoever, just whole cloth, move that type of church straight into the the United States in the 1900s. And so from... The Bethel Bible College and the small group that were at Bethel Bible College, Charles Parham then brought his uh, his belief system to the uh, down to Los Angeles, California, and there was a three year long revival in the Azusa Street region. There was a small mission that was opened up there. Well, it was a small closed down church that they reopened and kind of took over, but William Seymour was another preacher that came on the scene that embraced the particular movement and uh, was taught by Charles Parham. And so these men eventually branched out and taught other men, and then they took it in other directions. 
and it expanded very rapidly. In fact, Pentecostalism is is very difficult to pin down theologically because it has become a part of many other uh, Protestant churches. In fact, it's even some aspects of Pentecostalism have spread into the Catholic Church, and so it, it's it's very ecumenical. It's gotten into it's gotten to where it's a, it's become an experience many different faiths have embraced, whether they subscribed every specific aspect of Pentecostalism or not. So it's become just, just a shotgun effect. You know, it, it's, people want the excitement and the spiritual gifts aspect. And this really demonstrates how much humanity mainly just wants to feel something in church. They want to feel like some, there's some kind of entertainment or some kind of a sensation. They want to feel feel like they have a spiritual journey occurring. And so Pentecostalism gives them this taste that there's a supernatural world out there, and they jump on that. And so there are some movements that are considered holistic Pentecostal. They're, they're a separate movement that identifies itself only as Pentecostal, such as uh, the Apostolic Church, um, of course, you know, the United Pentecostal Church International, or UPCI. There's also the Assemblies of God. There's Church of God. There's International Pentecostal Holiness Church. They go by a lot of different names, and everyone seems like they want to be their own entity, which is really interesting to me that a group that wants to go back and restore the New Testament Church of the Apostles also somehow they all come to different conclusions about what the apostles wanted. Uh, some of them are considered with a uh, oneness only. They only believe in uh, one God and his name is Jesus. And that's, they're considered uh, oneness Pentecostals or apostolic Pentecostals. But there are some that are Trinitarian. There are some that are, they want to stick with the Presbyterian method or they want to stick with the Methodist method. It's, but they all call themselves Pentecostals. Um, one key difference, I think, is most Pentecostals are Arminianists. Or Arminianist. They believe that it's possible to lose your salvation, as opposed to Calvinists or other groups that believe once you're saved, you're, you're saved forever, and there's no way to lose that. I think the majority of Pentecostals are, in fact in the mindset that you can lose your salvation through either not maintaining your experience or quite possibly, you know, wrong actions on your part. Most Pentecostals believe in eternal heaven and hell. I, I am not aware of Pentecostals, again, as far as a... a separate movement. We're not talking about Pentecostals in a Catholic church or in a um, other denominations, but a, a separate Pentecostal denomination will traditionally believe in eternal judgment. Uh, you go somewhere for eternity, your soul will occupy some space after you die. And without getting into too many details, most of the Pentecostals stick to the Acts 2.38 formula. 
So to be saved, you have to do three things. This is pretty well beat into all of our heads from a very young age. You must repent of your sins. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or in the titles, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, depending on which branch of Christianity you are. And you must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the speaking of other tongues. So they stick to this Acts 2.38 formula, and this is very much what everyone thinks is the only possible way that you can be saved. So, that is a summary of the Pentecostals. They didn't show up in a vacuum. They did not just come out of thin air. But in fact, it is believed that they stemmed out of the revivals that took place from uh, the Wesleyans back in the, this would have been the 1800s. These were Methodists, and they were trying to push for a holiness movement. They wanted to restore the church that had fallen into, into evil and corruption. So the Wesleyans taught the second work of grace, that you could be saved, but then you also needed to, and I'm not completely familiar with this particular group, so you have to forgive me for my lack of knowledge, but they were trying to sell the idea that there were there was a moment where a person got saved, but then there was also a process whereby you could remove the tendency to sin from your personal life, and so you could become essentially a pure person, and there was practices that followed this particular uh, idea and concept. And they had very much this legalistic approach where a holiness group does not participate in certain activities, they wear certain clothes, they're careful how they talk and act. And so it's it was very much creating this outward appearance of holiness regardless of what your inner personality and your mind state was in, but it was simply, hey, you know, follow these guidelines, and no matter what you do, you always follow these guidelines, and they will help you stay out of the tendency to sin. And so Pentecostalism mostly carries this over in different degrees. Some Pentecostal churches have no problem with movies or television, uh, women wearing pants. But in a good percentage of Pentecostal churches, some of those things are banned completely. Some of them go as far as to not celebrate Halloween, Christmas, uh, birthdays, because these are pagan holidays. Many Pentecostals teach against jewelry, and certainly cigarettes, alcohol, drugs... The ingesting of any of these substances is completely off the charts, forbidden. So the concept of holiness and legalism and creating this atmosphere of almost a set of clones where everyone follows this particular procedure, this rigorous schedule, this is something that's carried over through many different aspects of the Pentecostal movement. And it stems again from this origin in the 1800s of the, the Wesleyan revivals and the concept of them seeking the second work of grace, um, a, a lifestyle free completely of 
sin or the desire for sin. So there is Pentecostalism, um, where it comes from, what its origins were before it became Pentecostalism, as well as some of their beliefs and practices. Now, my personal background, I was in a particular Pentecostal church for over 30 years, pretty much my entire life, really. And I spent all 12 years of school in a private school that taught the ACE, Accelerated Christian Education Curriculum, which is another subject altogether for another day. I got married in the Pentecostal church. Um, really, most of my memories and most of my friends and social circle all was wrapped up in this church. There was no outside influence for the most part. You know, it it was highly discouraged to have a social circle outside of the church. It was certainly discouraged to have relationships outside of the church and to spend any amount of time in the company of people that uh, that have left the church or you know, who's marginally acceptable to spend time with family that just happened to be outside the church. Very much an isolationist culture. Now, I've been told since I probably grew up in something more along the approximation of a cult. Um, many Pentecostal churches are not that extreme. Uh, our, the church we grew up in was very strict on finances in that you gave 10% of your gross income so you make 500 bucks in a week, you hand over 50 bucks. That's just how it works. That was the bare minimum. They highly recommended giving to their Sunday school, their outreach programs, donating to the private Christian school, donating to youth fundraisers, donating to the building fund. There were quite a bit of other programs running that added up quite a bit to that, uh, that figure. And so this put quite a bit of pressure on young families, people that really could not normally afford to hand out that kind of money. And yet they did anyway because they were told, <laughs> however much you give to God, he'll give right back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now, for me personally, I was completely sold on the belief system I was indoctrinated from a very young age. I had no reason to question it. I really did not have this uh, doubt that it was, in fact, correct. I felt like everything was explained and, you know, it all made perfect sense. And so it was not until many years later that I got the opportunity to really critically analyze the belief system. And it came in the form of a Bible study, ironically enough. My wife and I were helping a, another person in the church teach a Bible study to, um, to a nice young couple. It was a man, a woman, and their young daughter, and they were approached by the other individual in our church, and they offered them the Bible study, and they accepted. We showed up a couple nights, just one night a week for maybe a month, and they had some interesting concerns about our church. They were very smart people. They were very cool to talk to. They were concerned about certain doctrines, such as speaking in tongues. They, they had some genuine concerns about this that were 
very valid. They seemed like they were intelligent people and they had well thought out responses. And so in the process of trying to answer their concerns and deal with their questions, I spent some time on Google just researching how to respond to this and how to answer these questions. And in that process, I started to discover that it was not quite an open and shut case about the theology behind Pentecost. There's, there's some really interesting scripture interpretations that the Pentecostals have twisted to mean one thing, and then of course they ignore certain scriptures completely. But we'll get into that uh, perhaps in a future episode. But really, it was just this dam that was breaking. There were all these questions and doubts that were built up. And once once I got genuinely curious and was willing to objectively look for the answer, that was when the dam broke and I was able to kind of really seek for answers without hesitation. And almost, at a, almost exactly at the same time, a separate but related event was taking place, and that was... An evangelist was in our church, uh, and I forget his name at the moment, but he was a very loud individual. Like He held that microphone right up to his lips, and he'd just scream into it. And it was so overwhelmingly loud. And on top of that, the uh, musicians in our church have slowly been uh, tending to become deaf. <laughs> Not surprising, given how much you, you practice at home and you... You play loud music, and musicians tend to go deaf prematurely anyway, but in Pentecost, music is very instrumental to the to the service, and loud music especially so. And so they were more prone to this type of uh, deafness. Well, I plan to protect my hearing, at, certainly at my age. I, I want to be able to enjoy music for many years to come. So it finally got to the point where I decided to start wearing earplugs to church, and I got the best set of earplugs I could find. They were you know, 35 dB rated, good stuff, good quality. Started wearing those virtually every service, uh, prayer before service, the song, worship service, the preaching, the altar call after the service. 100% did all of it uh, with earplugs, and... In just a few weeks, I had really noticed this massive difference in how I was reacting to the service. Uh, for those who have never been in a Pentecostal church service, it's extremely uh, energetic, it's loud, it's noisy. You can look up you know, Pentecostal church service on YouTube and find examples of it, and it doesn't do it justice, the level of noise and chaos that takes place in those church services. But it's a totally different world when you put the earplugs in and it screens out all the craziness and it brings everything down to a conversational tone, conversational volume level. Then you finally get to the point where you're processing what's going on around you, you're, you're listening to the words being preached, and for some reason it sounds completely different when the volume is turned down and it things stopped making sense really fast. Later on, much later on, you know, I came to discover this is really a technique 
that is used frequently in, in cults, and that is, you know, crank up the volume, get people into an emotional high, emotional low, just play with the brain chemistry, and they become dependent on on that experience, and that keeps drawing them back in. It's, it's 100% a psychological technique, but simply wearing earplugs was doing a great deal of, um, of work to breaking that up and, and making that go away. And so I was in the frame of mind where I was already skeptical about what I was experiencing in this service, and then compounded with looking up the history of the church on Google and really discovering what I've just read to you, this, this concept of where Pentecost comes from. It went to great lengths to break the hold that the, that the church had on my life. And so we were taught from from very young age, and it was consistently hammered into our heads that you are the original church. You know, we are the only real church, period. You know, all the Catholics are a bunch of heretics. They're going to go to hell. The Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, you know, the JWs and the Mormons, every one of them is going to burn forever. You know, they're in false doctrine, and they're leading people astray, and, and we're the only ones with answers. And so to read the history of this church and to see how how recently it was formed and and really some of the doctrinal error that they've made, especially in the local church, but in the organizations as a whole, it just it was like waking up from a coma and you see everything clearly for the first time. And from that point forward, it just started the ball rolling of me reevaluating everything in my life up to that point. And eventually it came down to looking at the history of Christianity as a whole and religion as a whole. And I started studying the origins for, you know, where did the human race come from and the concepts of, of the age of the earth and science and evolution. And, and I started to really see how, Clearly, clearly, the human race has evolved out of the other primate species. The evidence is absolutely crystal clear. We were not created as a separate species out of whole cloth by a deity from the dust of the ground. And therefore, the entire Adam and Eve creation story is a myth, it's folklore, and clearly we're not bound by this original sin that religion wants us to believe that we are. And so there it was. It was um, it was all laid out, and once that sunk in, the concept of, of the Garden of Eden, the Flood, and the Tower of Babel all being myth and folklore, that was enough to just make me drop the whole thing like a hot potato, and I walked away. And perhaps the greatest evidence that the church that I was in was a cult was, you know, people that I had known for 30 years just immediately cut me off from their life. Just no hesitation. I was the pariah, the apostate, you know, and I was the threat. And family members just cut me off completely. And various members of the church won't even text or talk to me. And it's like, that's so inhuman, it's so antisocial, and it's simply the result of the, the cult programming, you know, to, to see anyone outside the group as a threat, 
and someone who leaves the group is elevated to you know enemy of the group more or less and it's it's disheartening that people are are good people are still in that and they still believe that but that's part of the reason I want to do this podcast is to educate people that have not been in it before and if possible reach people that are still in it and try to help them see where they're at and where things are going and I hope I hope it will make some difference but in future episodes we're going to cover specific theologies and some of the theological errors that are in Pentecost and maybe a little more details on the history of the church and a little more details on the scientific theories that got me out of it and some specifics on the cult doctrines or the, the cult practices that specify what makes Pentecostalism and the church I came out of in particular called it's very interesting stuff so you'll want to hear some of that anyway thanks for listening guys I appreciate your your patience and hearing me stumble through this but I hope that this helps you in some way and I certainly hope you learn something have a great day and thanks oh you can say it better than that say it again all right listen to the question now can God do